Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Most families have holiday traditions. There's usually a home or a certain place where everyone can meet up. Families get so spread out across different areas of the country, even the world. So it's comforting to many to know that they have that one place where they can all meet up. For the Teed family, that place was a cabin in Oakley, Utah. Oakley is about 45 miles east of Salt Lake City, Utah. That's about 72 kilometers. And every year, the Teed family all gathered there at Christmas time and sometimes during the summer, most traveling from their homes in Texas. And it was a place that one of the Teeds lovingly referred to as Teeds Tranquility. That nickname was very appropriate. The cabin was off the beaten track. It was about two and a half miles off the road, and one had to drive a snowmobile just to get there in the winter. The mountainous region is very scenic. There's a canyon not far from Oakley, and it's calm and serene there, which makes it a perfect getaway during that hectic holiday season. No one would ever think of this place as a killing ground. The family always looked forward to their time there. They had their Christmas tree already set up, with stockings hung about the fireplace. It was the year 1990, and only about three days before Christmas. 
So they were finishing up their shopping and getting ready to head back to the cabin. First on the way there was 21-year-old Lene, and with her was her mother, 51-year-old Kay, and Kay's mom and Lene's grandmother, Beth Potts, who they lovingly called Grams. As they approached the cabin on the snowmobiles, Lene quickly jumped off and she ran to the door. She wanted nothing more than to get her hands under some warm water because they were freezing. She urged her mom to quickly unlock the door. When she got to the top of the stairs, she thought she saw a gray flash go behind the refrigerator. One of the cousins must be here already, hiding to jump out and scare me, she thought. But instead of a cousin or a family member, it was a fuzzy-headed man she'd never seen before in a gray sweatshirt, and in his hand he held a pistol. Who else is with you, he demanded to know. She told him, just my mom and my handicapped grandmother. Lene's grandmother was blind. Directly behind Lene came her mother, and by the time she reached the top of the stairs, another man had emerged out of a back bedroom. This man had thick, Coke bottle-like glasses, and he had his gun pointed right at Kay. He ordered all the women inside. Beth Potts was led to a stool, while Kay stood right behind her daughter. What do you want, Kay asked. She barely got that question out before the explosion of a gun fired right through the air. Kay grabbed her chest, and she fell to the ground yelling, I've been shot. Lene then looked over her shoulder to where Grams was sitting, and in that next instant, she saw her get shot in the head. Blood was everywhere. Her Grams grasped for breath and was just then silent. Lene remembers the whole thing went in slow motion. She begged the men to let her call the paramedics. They just acted like they didn't do anything, she said. It was no big deal, like it was just another day. They talked about needing to throw the bodies over the balcony. The men were talking about moving her grandmother's body. The gray sweatshirt man said, I had to shoot the bitch twice in the head. One of the men got physically ill trying to move the body and was heard retching in the bathroom. Lene then realized she recognized that sweatshirt. It was her father's. And worse yet, she could hear the sound of snowmobiles approaching the cabin. They would be carrying her father and her sister. Lene said she started scrambling, thinking about what to do next. She thought of the family car with the keys under the mat, but how would she get to it? She pleaded with the men to just leave. Coke bottle glasses told her that they would have to take her with them. The man in the gray sweatshirt grabbed her by the neck and then he placed the gun to her head. Sixteen-year-old Trish and her father, Rolf, had just arrived to the cabin and they were getting off their snowmobiles when they saw a man come out from the garage holding a gun. Another man emerged and he had his arm around Lene's neck. Rolf could see the fear on his eldest daughter's face and the tears in her eyes. They looked at each other and there was an unspoken knowledge between them. He knew something horrible had happened and he didn't see his wife. He knew this was very bad. They ordered everyone inside the cabin. First, the men told Rolf to start taking off his clothes. 
and as he was disrobing, the men demanded money, which Rolf then threw to the ground. It was about $105 altogether, which Coke bottle glasses picked up and put in his pocket. Then the man in the gray sweatshirt told Coke bottle glasses to shoot Rolf. The man aimed the gun right at him, but he didn't fire. Half a minute passed as he held this gun, but he didn't shoot. Frustrated, the gray sweatshirt man holding Lene then pulled out his gun. He pointed it and he pulled the trigger. But his gun didn't fire. He tried it again, but it didn't fire. The third time the gun worked, and he shot Rolf directly in the face. So these men had been at this cabin for a while. They'd eaten food, they'd rummaged around, and now they had to get rid of all this evidence. So both men started pouring gasoline everywhere. And gasoline was plentiful because the family kept around a lot for the snowmobiles. Then the fire was set to the cabin. Smoke alarms broke the silence. And the girls were just stunned. They'd just witnessed the murder of both of their parents and their grandmother. And they didn't even have time to process this in their minds before the men were hurrying them up and telling them to load up the snowmobiles. Trish and Lene were forced to drive with each gunman as a passenger. Trish thought about deliberately crashing, but she was too concerned about what harm might come to her sister. And even though she was younger, she felt instinctively like protecting her. As the girls approached the main gate, their hearts sunk. Coming up the cabin was their uncle Randy, who was their father's brother. So they knew they would have to act like they didn't know him just to ensure his safety. So they drove by without waving. Randy looked at them and thought maybe they had boyfriends with them. But he remembers thinking it was odd they didn't acknowledge him. Finally, they reached the family car. The one man loaded his gun into the trunk and he pulled open his jacket to reveal a knife. He said, don't worry, I'm just as good with a knife as I am with a gun. Little did they know, Randy had turned around to follow them, because something about the behavior just didn't sit right with him. He thought he saw his niece, Lene, in the backseat of the family car, so he approached it, waving his hands, yelling, stop. Once again, the girls pretended they didn't know him, and then the car just left. The men told the girls they planned on going to New York and then out of the country. They claimed that they would let them go once they got to their destination, but the girls really didn't believe that. And as they rode down the road, Trish was in front with one gunman. Lene was in the back with the other. Trish noticed a cop car pass by. She then saw it quickly turn around and it began to follow them. The men panicked and they floored it to about 90 miles an hour, which was way too fast for a snowy, narrow road. Up ahead, a roadblock was set up, but the car just drove right through it. And as they reached the canyon, the car fell off a steep embankment. It landed with a hard thud. The girls looked up and noticed that the car was at an angle, and surrounding the car were lots of cops, all pointing guns at the car. 
At this point, Gray Sweatshirt turned to his partner and declared, It's time for us to die now. Trish didn't know what to do other than to grab her sister's hand and tell her to duck. The one gunman jumped out, drawing his gun. The deputy who followed the car and an officer from nearby Kansas fired two shots at the man, so he quickly threw down his gun and surrendered. And without incident, the other man surrendered too. So by this time, the cops had handcuffed the men with their hands behind their backs. And in Lene's mind, the whole thing was finally over. She felt what was like a sense of relief, but also an overwhelming sense of anger. She screamed, kill them. They just killed my mom, my dad, my grams, kill them. She had to be pulled away. They were taken to a nearby hospital to check for their injuries. And a little while later, while they were there, somebody asked if they wanted to see their father. To their shock, he'd survived the attack. When the girls left with the kidnappers in the car, Uncle Randy remembers seeing a snowmobile approach him. What was odd was the rider wasn't wearing a coat or gloves or a helmet. And as he got closer, he could see it was his brother. But his face was full. It was huge. Blood was everywhere. Both of his eyes were swollen shut. Rolf then told him about the shootings and how the men had taken the girls. But because of the remote area, the cell service was very shoddy. And of course, at that moment, it wasn't working. So Randy loaded his badly injured brother into his car and he headed down the road. At one point during the drive, he got a hold of 911. And he barely got out the fact that he needed a helicopter to transport his brother before the line went dead. Luckily, he got to a payphone at the nearest gas station very soon. Rolf was able to tell how he survived. After he'd been shot, he played dead for fear of being shot again. He heard the men discussing how they were having a hard time getting the cabin to burn. He said he heard footsteps and then another shot to his head. So even after being shot a second time, he was still somehow conscious. Next, he felt his body being doused with gasoline. Eventually, he heard the snowmobiles drive away. He said, At that point, I caught on fire, having been doused in gasoline. Bleeding profusely, he tore off the rest of his snowsuit. He tried hitting the flames around him with a towel, but this fire was out of control. He left on the snowmobile to get some more help, and it's an absolute miracle that he was alive. So meanwhile, at the cabin, patrol deputy Brad Wild was one of the first investigators on the scene. About 10 feet from the door, he could smell what smelled like burnt fabric or hair. And once he got inside the garage, he saw a big puddle of blood. As he started up the stairwell, he noticed bullet holes in the wall and blood was smeared everywhere. He said it looked like a war zone. Two bodies lay on the floor. And he said there was no need to check their pulses because they were both obviously dead. He actually walked into the smoke before he realized the top floor of the cabin was on fire. So he said he knew this was a crime scene and he needed some evidence. On the coffee table, he noticed there was a VCR and some tape, so he quickly grabbed them. 
And then later on, when he got a chance to watch the tapes, it wasn't anything that he expected. He thought he'd see various scenes of family celebrating the season. Instead, it was of the two gunmen opening the Teed's presence. He was absolutely disgusted by the scene. So these men were Vaughn Lester Taylor and Edward Delly. They'd both served time at Utah State Penitentiary. Vaughn Taylor for aggravated burglary and Edward Delly for arson. Delly was the man in the Coke bottle glasses and Vaughn Taylor was the man in the gray sweatshirt. Both were recent parolees staying at the Salt Lake City Orange Street halfway house. They were 21 and 26 at the time of the murders. Taylor had already been serving 15 years for aggravated burglary, but he'd been paroled on November 23rd. And Delhi had been serving one to five years sentence for arson. Both men were tried separately. And since they had videos of them opening the presents, it looked like premeditation. Plus, allegedly Taylor told a friend that he was going to... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rob some houses and kill the owners to get a car. In actuality, they hitchhiked to the area, and they indeed did rob some houses. One of the men had family in the vicinity, so they knew the Teed family had a car there. Rolf Teed even assisted Deli with his stuck three-wheeler on a few occasions. Taylor pled guilty to both murders, and in exchange, any other charges were dropped. A jury decided his fate, and they chose a death sentence. And this was probably due to the fact that when he testified, he was very combative and he claimed not to remember much. He said things like, it happened so quick, I don't know. Delhi was a bit different, he wanted to go to trial. And of course he tried to place most of the blame on Taylor, saying he did the fatal shootings. He was found guilty of second degree murder, so he could not get the death penalty like Taylor. During deliberation, one juror was a holdout. They knew that it could be a hung jury, so to spare the family another trial, they decided to convict him of the lesser charge. Taylor appealed a sentence quite a few times. One time was on the grounds that the jury was 75% Mormon. At one point during the attack on the Teeds, one of the girls began to pray, and he told her to stop because he was a, quote, devil worshiper. And then he maintained he didn't get a fair trial because of religious persecution. 
he's still on death row. And Lene and Trish said that they will be there whenever he is executed. A double funeral was held for Kay and her mother in Salt Lake City, with about 200 people attending. Rolf Teed was able to make it there despite his injuries. He arrived with his face bandaged and part of his head was shaved. Sue Ellen Tidwell, one of her sisters, and the mother at the service said, Mom and Kay were not only mother and daughter, but were friends. Mrs. Ponce had been partially blind since a car accident that killed her second husband. She was survived by 19 grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. Both women were very strong in their faith, and they had attended that church regularly. The bishop presiding over the funeral urged the mourners to find forgiveness in their hearts. He said, It's painful to be the victim. But have you not learned how much more painful it is to be the offender? I think it's easier said than done for someone who didn't live through what the surviving Teed members did. If I just watched my family get slaughtered in front of me, I doubt forgiveness would be the last thing in my heart. Some good did come out of the horror of that day. Trish and Lene grew even closer to the father. They'd realized without a doubt that he was their hero. Even though that day he was severely injured, his main focus was his daughters. As he rode on that snowmobile, he knew he had to get help for them. Lene said she received a letter in 2001 from Edward Deli. It took her over nine years to respond. She said, I held on to that letter and I reread it probably 20 or 30 times. I basically wanted to get a feel if he was truly sorry. I was very careful and guarded with my feelings. Deli has shared with me that he has grown into a man and not the same evil boy that committed that crime. I believe that I gained my freedom back for myself by choosing to forgive Deli. For me, forgiving does not mean forgetting. Lene found love with Nathan Coates, who was her childhood sweetheart. It was her second marriage, and between the two, they have nine kids in a big blended family. Trish is a divorced mother of two daughters, Ashlyn and Brooklyn, and she said she sees her parents in her daughter's eyes, and she feels her mother would be proud of the survivor she's become. Their uncle Randy rebuilt that cabin, and everyone feels it's better than before. When they decided to do it, Rolf told Lene, I know lightning strikes, but it never strikes twice in the same location. And that thought made her feel safe. To the family, it's a healing place and not a place of bad memories. They chose to think of the better times spent there and they work on creating new happy memories. Sadly, Rolf was diagnosed with cancer and the family spent the last weeks of his life together. As he took his last breath in 2008, his daughters were by his side. In the end, the sisters feel changed. Lene said, I feel very much this experience has changed me as a person.